0: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Shining through CIDP to me means being able to do what you want to do and not what the disease is telling you you can't do. Don't give in to the disease. It's not easy, but I'm going to do it. And like I've told people, I may have CIDP, but CIDP don't have me. Sign up at ShiningThroughCIDP.com to get real CIDP stories and resources. A Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday, August 24. I'm Tom Tilly, and in this episode of The Briefing, the amazing story of Curtis McGrath,
1: Yeah, in 2012, he was being carried off the battlefield in Afghanistan. He'd had his legs blown off, and he told soldiers at that time that one day he'd compete in the Paralympics. And sure enough, four years later, he was at Rio and did just this.
0: What a performance this is. Half a boat length clear, and now pulling away from his nearest rival to take gold by more than a boat length in the end. Curtis McGrath, you star world champion, and now a Paralympic gold medal. Yeah, it was just incredible. So this week, Curtis McGrath is heading to Tokyo for the Paralympics, which open tonight. So we're going to bring you his amazing story in the second half of the briefing. First, here are the big news stories of today.
1: Prime Minister Scott Morrison is pledging to hold premiers to account on his national plan to reopen Australia once vaccination rates hit that 70 to
2: 80%. We will live with this virus as we live with other infectious diseases. That's what the national plan is all about, was always about. That's how we designed it and that's how it needs to be implemented. Because if not at 70% and 80%, then when? So that plea
0: comes after Labor leaders in WA, Queensland and the ACT have been wavering on lifting restrictions once they hit those targets because of the severity of the situation in New South Wales. And National Cabinet's asked for updated advice on the impact of reopening when daily case numbers are still in their hundreds. And the Prime Minister says he'll reveal that on Friday when National Cabinet meets. Annika, what do you make of this sort of a, a fight brewing between the Premiers and the Prime Minister? He's clearly backing himself on this target. And do you think he's read the electorate and said, well, people are ready for this?
1: It's interesting because up until now, uh, leaders have been, I guess, uh, leaning into lockdowns, uh, shutting international borders and Mm -hmm. state borders because it's been popular. That's all it's been about. In the lead up to every state election, we've seen premiers commit to keeping everybody else out and keeping people in their state safe. Maybe he's read the room. He's very into polling and decided that as other parts of the world start to reopen and as those vaccination rates go up, that the appetite might change. And I think he perhaps is right. I don't think anybody wants to open up now when we're seeing huge numbers of cases in New South Wales, rising cases in Victoria, and we still have so many unvaccinated. But you are starting to see a change of language amongst him, amongst his treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, um, amongst Gladys Berejiklian, who are saying that we're going to have to live with the virus and that getting back to zero is just not going to happen.
0: And since they agreed on those 70 to 80 percent targets, the situation has changed in New South Wales. That's why they're having this debate. Just yesterday, Gladys Berejiklian said getting cases to zero is unattainable.
2: Even if you start off with a lower base of cases, it's going to get up to the hundreds a day very, very quickly. And that's what we have to accept with the Delta strain. We can't pretend that we're going to open up and even if you had 30 cases to start with or zero, that it's going to stay that way.
0: Yeah, New South Wales was at 818 yesterday. The thing I don't get about this, Annika, is say we're at 70% fully vaccinated. What's the difference if we are at zero when we open up at that stage or whether we're at a few hundred cases a day? We're going to get a few hundred cases a day very quickly anyway.
1: I guess it's the rate with which it will rise. If you open when you've got fewer than... 10 cases, as the Victorian Premier has sort of said he's aiming for, and you've got 70 to 80% of eligible people, and that doesn't include children vaccinated, that means it's not going to spread as quickly. And if we think back to the start of this pandemic, if we can remember it, it was all about making sure the hospitals had the ability to respond. It wasn't about ridding ourselves of it. It was about flattening the curve. And making sure we had ventilators and the hospital space and ICU beds. So it's about the rate that people pick this up. And the current thought is, if you do have those 800 cases a day, and even if you have high vaccination rates, there's still those people that won't be able to get vaccinated and it'll spread too quickly.
0: Yeah, I still think you're going to get to those case numbers a few weeks later anyway, whether you're starting at zero or or 800. And so the difference in the long run won't be that significant.
1: Qantas has launched a mega prize draw campaign aiming to encourage Australian travellers to get vaccinated.
2: Uh, but we feel that now's the time to help recognise those people that have taken that step. and We believe vaccine is our ticket out of the pandemic and if we can do our little bit uh, to, to recognise those people, why not?
0: So that's the Qantas CEO Alan Joyce there. He announced yesterday the airline will offer ten people a year's supply of flights to sixty destinations, including overseas, uh, along with free accommodation and free fuel.
1: Sounds pretty tempting, Tom. From this morning, Qantas will also offer all fully vaccinated passengers over the age of eighteen a reward of some sort. You can choose either a thousand frequent flyer points or fifteen status credits. Or a $20 flight discount on any Qantas or Jetstar flight?
0: Mm, I think um, just getting to travel is probably enough of an incentive (laughs) for most people. Um, That's what they're doing in terms of a carrot. In terms of a stick, um, they're saying that all employees have to be vaccinated. Frontline employees by the middle of November and the rest of their staff by the end of March.
1: The Australian government says it's committed to doing the right thing by helping the people of Afghanistan. Revealing an RAAF flight evacuated another 450 people from Kabul on Monday. This is a situation that remains extremely volatile and very dangerous. Our top priority continues to be ensuring that safe departure of Australian citizens and visa holders and also working with our friends and partners uh, to support one another's evacuation operations.
0: That was the Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne. The latest rescue mission brought the number of people evacuated by Australia to 1,000. And Australia is likely to resettle around 12,000 Afghan refugees after calls from both sides of the political spectrum. They've called for us to match the 12,000 Syrian refugees we promised to take in 2015 after the civil war there.
1: Scott Morrison hasn't committed to a number, but he did tell Parliament we would ultimately resettle thousands and thousands of Afghans who had stood with Australian forces for more than 20 years. As with that Syrian intake, women, children and religious minorities are expected to be prioritised and all positions will still be under Australia's existing refugee cap, which sits at 13,750 each year.
0: And the Paralympics will begin in Tokyo tonight with the opening ceremony. Um, Just over 4,500 athletes will contest 539 events in 22 sports.
1: The Australian Institute of Sports, Alex Newton, says the Aussie Paralympians will be inspired by the incredible performance of our Olympians. We've just seen the Olympic team come back with some fantastic results and I think that will really inspire them really to do really their very, very best in what will be challenging circumstances, and a bit like a Paralympics, like they've never been to before with all the challenges of COVID.
0: Yeah, it'll be inspiring to watch, especially, I think, for people in lockdown. So a very captive audience there from people in New South Wales and Victoria. Carrying the flag into the stadium tonight will be seven-time Paralympian Danny DeToro and dual wheelchair rugby gold medalist Riley Batt.
1: 160 of the 179 Australian athletes competing at the Games have already made their way to Tokyo. Now, Curtis McGrath, who you're about to meet, will fly out later this week ahead of his events on the weekend. Curtis McGrath was a Defence Force engineer with one of the most dangerous jobs in the war in Afghanistan clearing landmines or improvised explosive devices.
0: And on a 2012 tour in Afghanistan, disaster struck. He had both his legs blown off. But as he was being stretched off, he told the other soldiers that one day they'd see him in the Paralympics.
1: And they did. It wasn't that long before he won gold at the very next Olympics in the men's KL2 canoe sprint event.
0: So in this interview, you're going to learn about the way he thinks and what drove him to get there, to Rio, within four years? And we're speaking to him right as he gets ready to fly to Tokyo for the Paralympics, which start tonight. Curtis, thanks so much for joining us. Is that story really true? Did you actually say you'd be going to the Paralympics as you were being carried off the battlefield?
2: Yeah, I, I did. And uh, the reason why I said it is I could see that the guys around me were going through some trauma and if I could say something or do something that could somewhat alleviate that trauma, I would, and and that's that's why I said what I said, and um, I wasn't sure if that was going to be the path in which I'd take, but um, you know, it was just something that sort of sprung to mind, and maybe it planted the seed.
0: What were you seeing in your mind when you said that?
2: Well, I, I, you know, I could see that you know the trauma that I was going through was not just my trauma; it was their their trauma too, and also, you know, the people that I loved and and cared for around the world were we're about to receive some traumatic news as well. Mm So I think that's a, an interesting thing to think about, you know, as an individual going through a traumatic event, it's not just one person. There's so many people affected, sort of ripples through their lives. And, yeah, I could just tell that they were hurting too. And, you know, there was a few guys crying and and whatnot, and and myself included. But it's just one of those things that, you know, you could see it and I could see that they were hurting. So I was just going to say something.
1: Your accident was in 2012. Within a few years, two years, You were winning gold at international canoeing events and then, of course, the Paralympics in Rio. Talk us through the recovery, um, especially within that timeframe. You sound like somebody that was quite positive early on and and re-geared your life, but was it like that the whole time? How did it sort of evolve?
2: Yeah, I guess I was quite positive throughout the whole time. Um, I, I guess I was just looking for the next opportunity and the next sort of optimistic advantage I could take. And I think I always had something in front of me to keep me sort of motivated and, and interested and focused. And I think you know, firstly, it was you know, healing and, and getting better and getting stronger and then learning to walk. And I was always setting all these little goals all the way through. and from healing and up and walking you know i was starting to explore new things power sports you know i did athletics swimming archery bit of wheelchair basketball and i sort of gravitated towards sports that i enjoyed as a kid growing up and i grew up in new zealand and queenstown so had um, pretty adventurous upbringing so i had the opportunity to whitewater kayak when i was little at school And um, really loved that and and heard that Para Canoe was being introduced into Rio and sort of gave it a go and it went really well. So I was, you know, had a little bit of – Experience there, but also dangling a carrot that I really enjoyed, and I think that's something that should be noted down as well. Is that you got to try and enjoy what you're doing, and, and that helps with the motivation too.
1: Now, Curtis, I don't know if uh, you're giving yourself enough credit there. You seem to have had incredible drive. Uh, not everybody might have that after going through an injury or through trauma. So I wanted to ask, what do you say to people? How can we help people who perhaps don't have that same optimism?
2: It wasn't all smooth sailing. You know, I had a lot of nerve issues. I had a lot of pain and and residual problems with my, my prosthetics. And, and also there was a, a bit of a hiccup in my path towards the Paralympics. So once you set those goals, you've got to make sure that they're realistic enough to be achievable within the time frame you're setting and also having hold people around me so they could support me as well. And I think there's a fair bit of study out there to show that when you tell people your goals, you're I think it's like sixty percent more likely to achieve them. So it's it's a it's a definitely something that I would recommend and, and also have have people around you that understand you and understand your capabilities and also motivate you and, and keep you online um, towards those goals too.
0: Your approach to this situation mentally is is quite mind blowing that you know, from the very first instant, you were goal orientated and and looking for the positive um, and the opportunities in this situation. And even to, I guess, navigate those setbacks you would have had along the way that you just touched on briefly there. Had you done some kind of psychological or motivational training before your accident that set you up well for
2: this? No, the goal setting thing came along after my injury. I wasn't really that goal orientated before being hurt. And I just saw that I needed something that was going to keep me focused, keep me motivated, I think. And sport was something that I was naturally sort of gravitated towards all the time, even mm-hmm. growing up as a kid. I played rugby and, and soccer and cricket and every and snowboard, all, all the above. And I just really enjoyed that and I think over my goal-setting orientating mindset I was looking at things that I enjoyed and that was you know sport so that also got me outside, got me socializing, got me, you know, moving and being healthy. And I think that's a really massive part of rehabilitation that we sometimes ignore. Um, you know, we're all quick to prescribe medication and therapy, but, you know, therapy can be done in a, a number of different ways. And for me, sport was one of those things and it was really an important tool for me to, to recover.
0: What are your thoughts about adaptation theory, which basically purports that most people return to their old level of happiness after a big shock like becoming disabled or even winning a lottery. What's been your experience? Do you feel like you're as happy now as you were before your accident?
2: I think so. I think I appreciate things a little bit more. I've been given obviously a unique perspective moment of what is a bad day and Mm. and obviously through my experiences in the military and, and what lifestyle we have and how lucky we are here in Australia and I guess I wasn't depressed or overly excitable before, but I sort of moved back into it and uh, saw opportunities in front of me that I could potentially take advantage of and and have an amazing support team around me that allowed me to look at those opportunities with a, a glass half full situation.
1: A lot has been made about the current Olympics that we've just had and and coming into the Paralympics that they come at a time when there's so many limits on the world, limits on movement, limits on travel, um, work. What do you think it is about the spirit it's ignited in what we've seen in the two weeks in Tokyo so far and what we're about to achieve that people really need at the moment, I guess?
2: Mm. Yeah, it it is great to have something on TV, especially considering half the country is in lockdown. And I think the Paralympics only just exaggerate everything you've just talked about by you know, seeing the, the possibilities of human movement and, and togetherness and, and coming together for a, an event that's global and, and you know peace orientated. And it is an amazing feeling being there and being a part of that. And you know, I can't wait to get over to Tokyo and, and join the rest of the, the team. But as you're saying, like it is a pretty tough time about the globe. Seeing the potential that we could have, you know, a world that we can travel as long as it's, you know, controlled and safe and everyone's vaccinated and we're wearing masks and socially distancing and trying to take all the precautions necessary to keep safe. And I think the Paralympics and Olympics just gave us some hope that there's, you know, potential for life away from this coronavirus ahead of us.
0: And Curtis, how have you been feeling about what we've seen in Afghanistan over the last week as the Taliban retake control?
2: Yeah, it's obviously a distressing time for myself and the rest of the veteran community, but not as much as the people of Afghanistan and what they're having to deal with and and going to have to a front and hopefully won't be as tyrannical as it was before we were in Afghanistan. But it is a hard thing to see considering, you know, the the lives lost and the limbs lost and and the injuries and the cost and and the time it's taken to, to get Afghanistan to a level where we Felt it was, you know, safe and secure and stable enough for us to withdraw. But unfortunately, we can't be there forever, and we can't hold Afghanistan's hand through every bump in the road. And this is an almighty mountain that they've got to climb. But at the same time, it's it's mm-hmm. up to them as well. They also need to to come through it, um, and, and hopefully, they come through it in a safe and stable manner. I feel that what I contributed to Afghanistan made the place better. You know, I was there searching for improvised explosive devices, landmines, homemade bombs, you know, that sort of thing, to take the capability out of the, the destruction and the, the war of the place. And, and I'm quite content that I achieved that.
1: Curtis, just finally, I wanted to ask you, as we all sit down to watch the Paralympics over the next couple of weeks, what's the one big misconception you think able-bodied people have about disabled people? And what attitude would you like to see change?
2: It's the initial attitude or perception that able-bodied or, or however you want to call it, um, give a, a disabled person. And that's just giving the person a chance first. I think you'll be surprised at what they can achieve. I think um, the opportunities should be equally as accessible and, and open to a person with disability. And, and if they are given a chance to try and a chance to show how good they can be, they will surprise everyone.
0: Yeah, well, I've seen uh, through your story and um, someone like Dylan Olcott that someone might have a physical limitation, but that inspires them to actually make their life even bigger and even more exciting than it might have been otherwise.
2: Exactly. I'm, I'm not talking about like a sympathy sort of token. I'm, I'm talking about just an equal opportunity. It, it doesn't need to be you know, made so apparent that this person is being given special treatment because they're a disabled person. Just an equal opportunity, I think, is is all we're asking for. and, And they will quietly surprise the capability of that person.
0: And that's often because they've had to have such a strong mentality to get through their challenge, right?
2: That's right. Just work a little bit harder and, you know, life is somewhat a little bit more difficult or, or you know, you have to look at things in a different point of view or a different perspective and, you know, that you figure things out differently. And that's quite a cool attribute to bring to the table, whether it's employment or sport or an adventure challenge. It's uh, a pretty amazing way in which we can see the world from a different point of view.
1: One of our incredible Paralympic hopes there, Curtis McGrath, who will compete in Tokyo next weekend in a few canoe events, so make sure you catch them. Tom, what did you make of that?
0: Such an amazing story. Firstly, just his approach right off the bat to look for the positives and the opportunities. That is just mind-blowing that he was able to think that way straight away. And then what he's achieved since is just incredible and shows that despite a physical limitation, your world and your experiences and what you can achieve can just be so much bigger if it's driven by that, that amazing attitude that we heard earlier. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we interview the Home Affairs Minister, Karen Andrews, about bringing Australians home. Listener. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see, so...